Welcome, you're listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. This is your host, John Marchalero, and this week my guest is astronomer Dr. Clay Sherrod. Clay, welcome to the show. Good afternoon, and thanks for having me. We have been chatting uh, this morning uh, about what we're going to talk about, and I'm really excited about this show because you've had a fascinating career, and I'm, I'm really happy to have you on the show. For the listeners, let me give you an introduction. So your astronomical studies began in 1970 with the Arkansas Sky Incorporated, your private nonprofit and educational research and education program. Although you're now retired, the work, publications, and outreach that you do at the Arkansas Sky Observatory is greater than ever and ranks among the top in private nonprofit smaller facilities. In addition, you are well known for your innovations in instrumentation and adaption of conventional telescopes for advanced use by both amateur and professional observers. You are a consultant and designer of scientific and astronomical equipment and a consultant to major corporations worldwide and native of Arkansas your entire life. Pretty cool. I don't meet too many privately funded professional amateurs slash astronomers. It's amazing what you've done. So let's talk about it. Okay, thank you, John. Um, tell me about how you got interested in astronomy. That's always an interesting story whenever I talk to astronomers and astrophysicists. Yeah, when yes did it, it all begin? It's funny because every every astronomer that uh, really takes his work seriously has an interesting story as to how they got into it. Mine began at the age of eight. Uh, one of my grandfathers had a small farm a uh, short distance from where I live today. And we had been out. To, he was an educator, but he had a small farm. And we went out one night, and he was showing me the different stars. And a little asterism of stars, it looks like the Little Dipper, I called it, the Little Dipper in front of him. And he corrected me at eight years old and said, no, that's not the Little Dipper. That's called the Pleiades or the Seven Sisters. And he started, proceeded to share a lot of historical knowledge that the man had that I did not know he had about how the ancient cultures from China to the Native Americans to South American, all of these people of early thousands of years before me, looked up there and saw the same thing in a little tiny pattern of stars, the seven sisters of industry, each star representing what good women in a culture are supposed to do, weaving, cooking, gathering, basket making. And it fascinated me that people could be separated by thousands of miles, even at eight years. Uh, I, the, the, this thought hit my mind immediately. How in the world did the Chinese know what the Native Americans were even thinking to even associate a small group of stars in the sky to the same thing. And uh, it still fascinates me today. And it, it was that it was that one spark that really ignited the fire of the sky under me. Where did you go to school as a result of uh, your interest in astronomy? Well, of course, after high school, I went into conventional college at a small college here in Arkansas called Hendricks College and uh, quickly moved on to, uh, to the University of California and uh, ultimately through Cornell, and where I studied a little bit under Carl Sagan and got to know him fairly well. One of Carl. my heroes. Tell me a story about Carl Sagan. What was your I favorite you, story about meeting the, him? The most, I tell you, I can't, I can't tell you, the, uh, without a doubt, the most uh, impressive story with Carl was, number one, he was, he was a good friend to everyone. Uh, it, it was like uh, you had grown up with him. Uh, even though he was uh, he he was my uh, my counselor and my uh, mentor, uh, we actually worked on a couple of, of uh, smaller parts of the Mars probe that went to Mars in 1976. Viking. 
that uh, yes, the Viking, the original Viking that did the little uh, little shaker thing, the the little uh, looking for life device that shook uh, soil into a uh, pot of heat. We, we called it chicken soup, and looked <laughs> and uh, and Carl had a great sense of humor, and we laughed about the device, we laughed about the results. And I was actually, I got to be uh, uh, involved in that team, and it was a, a very good inspiration for me. Awesome, awesome. And uh, you worked on an interesting Ph.D. thesis. Yes, I did. I, 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 uh, it, it was something that's near and dear to me. Uh, creation is probably my, my primary interest, creation of life and creation of the solar system and the creation of the universe. And in the part of the, there was a lot of debate in 19, the late 1960s as to how we have two sets of planets. We have rocky, hard planets like Earth, Venus, Earth, uh, Earth, Venus, Mercury, Mars. And then we have huge gaseous planets. They're so different. The gaseous planets are very much like the sun's composition. The hard, rocky planets are like something totally different. And so I wrote a thesis and uh, did a lot of research, still do on the concept of two stars passing by, we say, in the dark of night, and uh, the gravity from one to the other pulled material away from one another and uh, put it into motion in, in a spinning fashion and eventually co- coalesced and made uh, the, 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 the star that passed us was probably an older, highly evolved star with heavy elements like iron and lithium and, and things that the sun did not have at that time. And that formed the hard rocky planets that that expelled expelled material, and then the the material pulled away from our own sun, likely created Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune because they're the they're pretty much the same chemical balance as the sun. Do we think that uh, organic molecules on Earth originated in space, or do we think they originated here, or a mixture? That's a great combination. Uh, uh, let, let me tell you how that, uh, in my opinion, works, and I think the only way it can works. If uh, and Sagan uh, would would back us up on this. Uh, he and he and his colleagues at Cornell uh, proved to the world that you can take the the primordial uh, proteins and amino acids that were found on a primitive Earth from volcanic activity and water and steam and so forth in an early. Uh, four billion year old uh, molten uh, active volatile planet, and you can you can subject it to high energy. Which I think you meant five minus four. One yes. billion. What? Uh, billion, four billion yes. years ago. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. Uh, and and put it together and expose it to an energy source uh, long enough, and it will eventually uh, create proteins. And those proteins uh, are the building blocks of life. Now, we do find proteins in space, too, to answer your questions. For example, mm-hmm. com- comets and meteors, uh, a lot of things, uh, even on Mars, we're beginning to think that a lot, of free, even with the chicken soup experiment, we're beginning to look back and realize we may have found evidence of life and just didn't know to recognize it because of its character. You put together the molecules that we find elsewhere and the molecules that we had on primitive Earth, and you put them together and give them under the right conditions and give it time, which is something most most people today in our modern world, that is something they couldn't do. But, you know, uh, God had plenty of time. So, you know, he mixed it up very well to where it could coalesce and eventually create uh, one of my favorite fields of study. And something I'm heavily involved in now is uh, uh, molecular biology and how the first life forms actually evolved from non-living uh, uh uh, proto proteins, which are like uh, uh, viral DNA, and uh, they're not living, but you can make them reproduce. 
and this 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 had to happen on Earth. We see uh, very very primitive ancient fossil evidence of of the earliest organisms, bacterial viral organisms that lived on on the planet, and they do resemble non living uh, uh, macro protein cells. Like you said, it's hard to get your head around billions of years of evolution. A lot can happen in chemistry over a long period of time. And this got me into the field of paleontology. And so I studied paleontology from the standpoint of the earliest evolution. In Arkansas, we have an absolute uh, field laboratory. The entire state is filled with fossils that date back 400 uh, 400 million years all the way to present. Uh, shark's teeth that go from 350 million all the way to probably 30 to 45 million years ago. We we covered a cross section of the dinosaur disappearance in Arkansas, and I've written a book about the, the the migratory routes of dinosaurs because of climate change and the fact that they, in order to reproduce and to maintain their own species, which is Darwin's first order. They had to migrate, and we have a migratory route that goes right through southwestern Arkansas. So this pulled me into paleontology, so I had to go back to school to study paleontology, which has been my entire life. I sense I, the influence of Carl Sagan on you because he was a he was a Renaissance man, interested in all forms of culture absolutely. and anthropology and paleontology, origin of life. And hey John, let me tell you, extra, let me tell you search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Wow. Yeah, yes, that was the ultimate, the extra, and he firmly believed in extraterrestrial intelligence of all of all types and in all multitudes. But one of the one of the things that uh, uh, you know, Carl was one of these people that could sit down and talk to anybody about this, and you would be captivated by <laughs> what he had to say. People, a lot of uh, pure scientists, did not take Carl seriously because he was such an easygoing. A uh, well-spoken, articulate fella. I think it was his appearance on Johnny Carson. He was he popular, and I think a lot of scientists resented that. They did. They, uh, that's a, that's the point I was trying to make, but politely, yes, they did. They did resent him quite a bit, simply because he had the way to communicate and absolutely draw in the public. I mean, you saw him on Johnny Carson. Many people did. Uh, a lot of people, your listeners, probably don't even know who Johnny Carson is. Oh yeah, they do. <laughs> You know, we you know we got to see him on Johnny Carson talking about billions and billions. And he says he never said that. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I did hear him say that. Oh. But uh, yes, uh, you know, it, it uh, the the whole the whole uh, evolution of the, the life process is still going on, and I've been so fortunate in the fifty years that I've been involved in this fifty two. To be able to uh, uh, to begin to understand part of it, write about it, and get my thoughts down on paper. I had a very interesting uh, astronomer uh, on a NASA astrophysicist, Dr. Pascal Lee, who works for SETI part-time, and uh, he talked about the Drake equation at some length. We spent an entire 50-minute show just dissecting the Drake equation and analyzing the probability of other intelligent civilizations in our galaxy. It's it amazing, was fascinating it? discussion. It is absolutely amazing, and you probably didn't come up with a conclusion either, did you? Well, he's on the optimistic <laughs> side. Uh, he, that's an equation that still is amenable to uh, the insertion of some guesstimates that are either very optimistic or pessimistic. I also had his well, boss on, Jill Tarter, and Jill Tarter, who was the former director of the SETI Institute, uh, wasn't so enthusiastic about 
some of the optimistic uh, calculations that Dr. There Lee had always, done. So there's a range of uh, estimates. Yes, there are always people like that out there. But here's here's the kicker on that, though, John. A lot of people are, are fixed on whatever NASA believes is the edge of space. That's what it must be. We don't really know where space ends. We have no fix on the exact number of world systems that can exist because, number one, we don't know how many suns there are out there to support world systems. We don't know how dynamics change when you reach the edge of the universe. And the edge of the universe, we have no clue what that really is. Is it, is it a, a, a membrane of a bubble? Is it something that's warped in time that we simply can't see? Or is there, is there an a, a edge of space at all? If there's not, then we have to assume that whatever we're talking about, going back to the Drake equation, may continue forever. And we really will never have a handle on it because it's beyond the, the uh, comprehension of the human mind. Yeah, that's why we try to restrict ourselves to the discussion of uh, life in our galaxy. We can get our head around that. You know, that's right. Civilizations yeah. can potentially migrate and populate and travel at the speed of light and migrate out throughout the galaxy and there there could be other civilizations you know within a few hundred or a few thousand light years of us but when you get to the distances of a hundred million light years between galaxies all bets are off that's oh, it is too far it, beyond it, it, our ability. I, I really believe I, and as a scientist and someone who who believes in technology and advancement i do believe that the speed of light is not attainable in under the under the rules of modern physics that's not to say we don't have a new physics waiting for us very soon, and some young young person will suddenly glean the, the you know what we've been doing wrong all this time. But for example, just to Andromeda, two and a half million light years away, the Andromeda galaxy, mm-hmm. we can't get there because we can't go that fast. The speed of light, which seems to be the ultimate yardstick, but that's two and a half million years to get to the Andromeda galaxy. How many generations of people on board the original spacecraft? would be required to make that journey. How much oxygen, how much air, how much I think, food? I think C.S. Lewis calls it a con- cosmic quarantine, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, let's move on. One of the things that fascinates me about you is uh, your interest in multiple different subjects, music and art and writing. But I want to get to that in the second segment. Uh, it's time to take a break right now. Folks, we'll be back in 60 seconds. I'm chatting with astronomer Dr. Clay Sherrod. Stay with us. Hello there, all you fabulous background mode listeners. I'm Kelly Gamont with the Mac Observer, and I just want to say a few words about how you can support all the things we do. If you're thinking about buying something from Apple, Amazon, or Mac Mall, just go to the Mac Observer's homepage where we have a section called Support TMO. Or you can just enter macobserver.com forward slash Apple Store, all one word, and that will take you to our special page for Apple and our other affiliates. If you make a purchase from one of our partners this way, the Mac Observer receives a small compensation for sending business their direction. Pretty cool, right? And you don't pay a penny more. This small fee from our affiliates helps us continue to bring you TMO's daily news, reviews, tips, how-tos, and podcasts like this one. So the next time you're thinking about an online purchase, come to TMO's homepage and support the Mac Observer. Thanks. Back to you, John. Thank you. I'm chatting with astronomer Dr. Clay Sherrod. So one of the things that I've discovered in my life is is that the most interesting and talented people are people who integrate or synthesize multiple disciplines. A lot of the staff on the Mac Observer are also musicians, and I think being a musician assists in 
in terms of the brain's ability to create coherent thoughts and create lyrical, interesting text. But that's just my opinion. And you are one of those people who's interested in music, art, and poetry, in addition to you know, all the technical aspects of astronomy. Tell me more about that. Well, my life has covered pretty much every dimension. <clears throat> I believe that God gave us 80 to 85 years to, to make an impact on whatever the human form is supposed to, to make. And uh, I've taken it seriously. I've, uh, I've been able to, uh, I use the word loosely, but to bounce around from one study to another, one discipline to another. I, th- I totally agree with you, John. Music, art, poetry, and so forth is vital for our entire body system to understand what we can do what we can inspire ourselves to accomplish in life. It gives me motivation. It gives me the discipline to complete what I start. Uh, I've been able to go from archaeology into environmental science, to jump from that to molecular biology, to go back to astronomy, to do paleontology in the state of Arkansas. Uh, Things that other people could not do, and and yet I'm still able to maintain a thread of cohesion to where people believe what I'm doing is the right way for me to go. The Dean of Sciences in one of the universities that I worked for, uh, his job description, and this is this is factual, his actual job description of me on record uh, in my file was one word, maverick. <laughs> and, I, and we discussed it many times, and he said, I, it's the only thing I could come up with to take to my bosses to tell them who you are and what you do. So I've enjoyed my life to be able to go from one area to the other. I don't flit around. I'm serious about what I do. I've made major accomplishments, major discoveries. I've invented incredible machines. And uh, this has all been part of my life. Uh, I'm one of the people that can look back, being one of the few last, uh, hopefully not, but Renaissance people that can look back and smile and say, you know, I've done what God intended for me to do. Speaking of God, let's take a few minutes to talk about a subject that we discovered is of mutual interest to us. We're both uh, amateur specialists in the integration of science and religion. Absolutely. A lot of people would claim that you have to believe in one or the other, but there are some very important scientists who've turned into theologians who explain to us that the two actually can coexist very beautifully and elegantly if you are well-versed in science and religion and understand how they elegantly work together and marry. Talk to us about that for a few minutes. You are right on point on that. And, of course, this is an entire topic in itself. But here's my answer to that. And this is one of the most frequently asked questions that I get. when I I used to lecture. I would lecture eight times a week through the 70s and 80s. And one of the things that I would get asked is, how can you believe in God if you believe in all this science and the, and the Big Bang and, and the fact that evolution takes place. I have several answers. Number one, stop and ask yourself and, and, and be honest with yourself. Ask yourself how you can believe that the greatest gift that God has given us is to be able to look back on what he created and understand that evolution is his tool by which life can continue to adapt and fit in to the worlds that we have to live in. And secondly, going back to your friends that, and your, your colleagues who have, have gone into theolo- uh, uh, theology and into religion, it is so easy to do. You, won't, you wouldn't believe how many people have asked me, would you start a church? Literally. You know, we would love to hear you preach about this. But stop and think about it. 
I have seen so many scientists, and myself included, get up in front of people and say, I, you know, you can't believe in Big Bang and you can't believe in God's creation. I do. I do. I totally believe in it. I'm a, I'm a scholar of the Bible. I've written books on this subject about how you can take every sentence, every fragment of a sentence, and you can justify the existence and extinction of the dinosaurs, uh, the great floods. You don't have to, you know, we, we look at it, uh, if you want to look at it literally, this is never going to take place. But if you look at it scientifically, the Bible and what happened historically in science throughout the, the, the history of the world systems throughout the universe goes hand in hand. But we tell people, what, who needs a God more than the atomic scientist who looks deep into the origin of the actual working mechanisms of all things, down into the tiniest of matter, or the theoretical astrophysics who explores all the way out to the greatness of the universe, all the way to what we call the edge and beyond. And yet, we have no answers. Those people, the molecular scientists, the, 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 the astro astronomical physicists, we need a God more than anyone else because we reach a point where we can't explain it anymore and we realize yes. that our knowledge will forever be limited. Science tells us the what. Religion tells us the meaning of the what. Absolutely. Yes, it does. And Gerard Schroeder points out that while the Bible is not a science textbook, the Bible often gets the global big picture story right and leaves yes, us a scientist to fill in the technical details. That's exactly right, and that's what science is for. Yep, yep. Okay, well, maybe we'll come back to that and talk about that in another show. How's that sound? We have to. Because that's a big topic. Do you play an instrument? I, I play piano and I play trumpet. I was a professional oh, wow. trumpet player. Yep. I'm, I'm in I, awe. <laughs> I, grew up, I grew up as a professional trumpet player. My grandfather played for the... Uh, uh, Barnum and Bailey Circus when he was a young man. My dad learned trumpet from him. He was a professional trumpet player. He played for uh, Al Hurt. Uh, and, oh, yeah, uh, Frank, I've heard of him. Frank, uh, Frank Sinatra, Buddy Rich. Yeah. I played alongside of him when I got old enough. I started playing when I was 14 years old and had a musician's union card. I was the youngest guy in Arkansas to be in the musician's union. I made $15.70 for a gig. And... Uh, but boy, was a, that was that was quite an experience for a young man to go out into some of these places and play with other professional musicians. As I said in the first segment, I think um, the musical mind is a is a mind that is amenable to certain kinds of big picture thinking and writing and and research and patience. I do not have that talent. Somehow, I managed to get through as a writer and uh, do reasonably well at the Mac Observer, but I'm in awe of people who have musical talent as well. I think it makes them a well-rounded, uh, deeper thinker and, and a cross-discipline thinker, too. I told my father, there are two best things that I did in my life. The first was to listen to him and get into music. The second one was to get out of music and, and, and become a scientist and become a writer and become the things a lecturer, the things that I am today. Music would have hindered me because it, it is a, it's a, it's a time-consuming, and oddly, John, it's a very mind-consuming uh, undertaking as well. You're wrapped up in music. You're wrapped up in poetry. You're wrapped up in song and art. I do a tremendous amount of artwork, and uh, the art is just it, it's overwhelming. People say, I want to buy that. 
And I say it's not for sale because it took me too long to make it. <laughs> and uh, I want to keep it. <laughs> I created it. I'm going to keep it. But uh, it you you really have to make a decision at some point. What what exactly do you want to do? I've been very fortunate between all the disciplines of science that I've been able to succeed in, uh, which is pretty rare. Everything from biomedical research to meteorology and climatology, archaeology, all of these things, in addition to astronomy and, and paleontology. I've been able to succeed in these things because I'm very well disciplined. I tell people, and I told my dad before he died, music gave me that discipline. Cool. I still believe it. So uh, tell me about the Arkansas Sky Observatory and its founding and its mission and what some of the work that's been done there and your contributions to the technical art of amateur astronomy. Arkansas Sky Observatory is actually a pretty cool place. It uh, uh, it's uh, you could call it semi-professional or quasi-amateur, whatever. Uh, I do try to help as many amateur astronomers as I can, both through instrumentation as well as through projects and protocol for good scientific. I believe that anyone with an uh, an average size telescope can make a scientific contribution, and it gives you great pleasure to do that. But uh, from the uh, beginning in 1970, when I started Arkansas Sky, I set about to lecture across all the entire country. I've lectured to probably at this point, I would say well over 100,000 students, people, uh, professional groups, and, uh, and got a lot of, a lot of people uh, involved. In addition to that, I've, I've taught students who have gone on to be major contributors into the sciences. So I'm very proud of all that. But Arkansas Sky Observatory is a totally independent facility. Uh, it does work in other sciences outside of uh, uh, astronomy. For example, we have a seismic laboratory here. Uh, we have also a, a, a climatological uh, long-term study laboratory and, and even a meteorology uh, uh, building. Where we and it looks like you have a pretty good-sized reflector there. Is that like a 16 or 24-inch? Uh, it, it's a, it's a 20, it, Yes, it is. It's 22 inches. And it's especially uh, uh, made for my interest in what I do. My primary research has always been in things that change rapidly. Um, early on, planetary atmospheres was a very uh, dominant uh, interest of mine. Uh, later on, comets and asteroids. And uh, back in the 70s and 80s, we didn't know of these things we call near-Earth asteroids, the things that potentially could collide with the Earth and call cataclysm, cause cataclysm like it did with the dinosaurs. And uh, But now that we have facilities that can reach deep into space, down to magnitude 22, 23, we can see how many we've got. 55,000 of these are Earth-crossing orbits, which can, at some point in, in, the, in the future, intersect with Earth and hit it. So Anything bigger than a kilometer in diameter is a real danger, from what yeah, I've very much so. People don't realize just how, how much of an impact the velocity makes. The mass of it, the velocity of it, and the size of it, uh, and plus the, the the motion of the Earth itself, and the delicacy of when it hits a particular part, make a huge difference on what that asteroid might do if it hit. We've been hit before. This is not new science. We just now have the capability of keeping up with it. In nineteen uh, nineteen uh, way back when, in two thousand sixteen, Arkansas Sky Observatory, this little nonprofit facility, we've got four observatories. It was a top in the entire world for private facilities, non-funded by the government, in its studies of near-Earth asteroid positions and orbits, and over 15,000 in one year. So that's telling you a lot of work came out of this little observatory here. 
And uh, how do you do that? Give me a brief description of that in maybe sixty seconds. Do you use CDs and uh, report the RA and deck of the object, and then that's right. calculated? Report the motion. What I do is I try to take three to five images a night of each object that we see, new ones, particularly the new ones that are discovered, so that I can follow them up. And from from even three. Uh, measurements as it moves across the field of stars. The stars are so distant they don't appear to move, but the asteroids you can actually measure their motion and three points across the sky in a period of time can define a curve. Do you have a and blink microscope software that uh, allows you to detect the change in motion? I've had a whole lot of software actually built for me by from professional software developers. Oddly enough, so much of what I have to do operates on DOS. <laughs> all, all oh no I'm sorry yes, you said that I'm sorry I had to hear those words <laughs> yes it does well, let me tell you what I'm, I'm sorry I have to use it, it, oh. it it's killing me you know, I, uh, I'm, you know I'm, I'm trying to find some alternatives but we we uh, all the measuring engines that I put together to measure these orbits and calculate the orbits uh, I, I can do 150 to 160 in one night objects and at the end of the morning I can push one key on the computer and it will completely recompute all the orbits of everything that I studied that night. Oh, that's pretty cool. And every, all that information goes to Harvard Minor Planet Center and uh, in that morning. And the next afternoon, they issue a, a new list of all the objects that have coalesced all the observations from stations like mine. The curious thing about this, I started doing that, looking for new objects and studying their motions in 1970 from a phone call from the Harvard-Smithsonian Observatory late at night in my very first observatory by a guy named Dr. Brian Marsden. And he's I've well heard known. that name. Well, yeah. he's, a, he's, uh, he's passed on now, but he was, in addition to Carl, he was one of my mentors. And uh, I cherished my time and, and the fact that I got to know him. But he would call me on a phone. We didn't have faxes. We didn't have computers. And if we had data, we had to send it by overnight uh a special delivery. You know, we didn't have priority. It was special delivery mail. and uh, But he would tell me that somebody claims they had found a new comet in a certain part of the sky. Would you, you know, he was British and he had a wonderful accent. He would ask me in his accented way, you know, is it clear there in Arkansas? And if it is, would you mind to check and see if you might find a comet and so and so and so forth? Now, of course, it you know has moved since this guy saw it. But if you'll search in so and so direction, we hope you can find it and report it back to me. And so I was the very first station for the Harvard Minor Planet Center network, which has got hundreds of, of uh, facilities now that work for them, but only about 25 or 30 that actually contribute regularly on a yearly basis. Cool, cool. Now tell me about ASO's uh, contributors. Do you have um, people who come in and, and rent the facility or get time on your telescopes to do their independent work, or is it just your stuff? It's just me. Uh, occasionally, I have some, some graduate students, uh, even college students, that will have a project. Um, uh, nothing's ever rented. Uh, there's no money ever taken. Um, this facility is operated totally independently uh, with private funds. Uh, but you have collaborated with the universities, right? Oh, yes, absolutely. Well, not, not in astronomy so much as in independent things, particularly environmental science and energy applications and so forth. I've done a lot of uh, uh, process engineering and a lot of environmental uh, consulting for the Department of Energy and for uh, others that I can't mention. 
that uh, have, have been a source of income, of course, but the, that's actually outside the scope of Arkansas Sky because it's done for contract corporations. All right, cool. Well, we've only got a minute or two left. I want to wrap up with uh, um, the interaction that you've had with amateur astronomers. I've talked to one noted amateur astronomer who said that you've been very helpful, uh, collaborated on a book on Mead telescopes, and uh, are really skilled at uh, optical design uh, and instrumentation. So tell me a little bit about that, and we'll wrap it up. I'm, I'm a gadget person. I love gadgets. When I was 10 years old, I used to walk my neighborhood, knocking on doors, and I would ask the people that answered the door if they had any appliance that was broken and needed to be fixed. <laughs> I made money doing that. And I could fix anything. They would hand it to me with a skeptic look on their face and kind of laugh. We'll never see that old fan again. We won't ever see that radio again. They'd hand it to me, and in a week, I'd bring it back, and it'd be working. So <laughs> That's I have a skill a real, every astronomer needs. <laughs> I have a real knack for fixing things, but I could always find a way to make them better while I was fixing them. So, yes, and, and uh, for people who struggle wanting to get into uh, astronomy is the most exciting, most fulfilling uh, application, whether it's professionally or avocationally, is it's the most exciting field that a person could get into. I don't want to see anybody not enjoy their time in astronomy. So yes, I reach out to people. I don't charge people to help them. Uh, I you know uh, I do a lot of design work for major companies, major telescope companies, and I do uh, consulting work for them. But I do most of my consulting for just uh, uh, you know Joe Smith down the you know, in, in Atlanta, Georgia or someplace, who writes to me and says, I have a problem with my telescope. Do you know what might be wrong? And two or three emails, and he's he's off and running, and I've got a collection of tens of thousands of words of thanks. Cool, so cool. It's been worth it. Did you, did you do any early work with iPhone photography? Mike you Wiesner know, did that. There, uh, Mike Wiesner did a tremendous amount of work. on. He, he, he loves telescopes, and he loves iPhones. And uh, he, uh, he and I communicated over and over again about this concept, and he's got every little gadget that will connect an iPhone <laughs> telescope, and he has done very, very well with it. Mike is a real innovative guy, and uh, because of what I do, I don't have time to even stop and say, I'm going to try that and see uh, if it works. or if. And, and Mike's asked me a few times, you know, why don't you try so-and-so? And I always have to tell him, I don't. I don't have time. You know, I'd love to, but I don't have time. And uh, so I use real sophisticated, very expensive CCD cameras that were actually designed for me uh, for the specific work that I do. They're very balanced, uh, very uh, project-specific cameras. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't get to really enjoy taking pictures like other people do. I run across a pretty galaxy every once in a while or, or a comet. It's just extraordinary, but I don't really get to look back and say, oh, what a great picture I took tonight. <laughs> doing that, and uh, there are so many good astrophotographers out there that are so much better than I would be. And so the way I look at it is that most objects in space have been photographed already, and I can tell you that most of them are better than what I would get. So I'm not going to waste my time, and I'm not saying it's a waste of time. But it would be in my applications. It would take time away from what I do. One of but, the things that amateur astronomers can do is supernova patrol. Yes, Pick out a section of the sky where there's a lot of galaxies and visit it every night. Take CCD pictures of galaxies. Use blink microscope software and see if they can detect any brightening of a section. 
and try to spot a supernova. It's been uh, several people have had success doing that. We we actually do a little bit of that here. Uh, one of the things that uh, uh, I have a particular telescope that can actually reach very very deep in space, and so uh, pretty distant uh, over three hundred different galaxies. I can reach, and I have uh, just recently written a complete catalog based on photographs taken by the big telescope here uh, that allows people to do just such that, just such work like that. And it's so easy for them to use good software to be able to blink two images and find something that isn't showing on one, but all you know, two weeks later, there it is, and it right. must be you know right. a new star in a distant galaxy. It's wonderful because. People that are not professional astronomers can contribute in that in that way. Yep. Yep. Well, that's all we have time for. Wow, it's time has gone by. It's been a great discussion. Thank you for joining me. Well, thank you for inviting me. I appreciate the opportunity. I can't believe how fast the show went, and there's so much more to cover. I'm going to just def- definitely going to have to have you back. Please talk do. about I, some I, more I of the things we missed. It. Yeah, that'd be great. I so, hope your I hope your listeners uh, echo that too. All right, well, let us know what you think, uh, folks, and I hope you enjoyed the show with astronomer Dr. Clay Sherrod. Um, you've been listening to the Back Observer's Background Mode. Oh, one more thing. Uh, tell the listeners how they can contact you if they wish. Uh, it's, it's very difficult contacting me, but I do have a website. It's arksky.org, arksky.org. It's a very comprehensive website, and you can learn all your astronomy right off that one site. It's, it's a fantastically resourceful site. And I have a Facebook page called Arkansas Sky Observatories, or I'll give you my email address, and I'd love for you to contact me directly. It's D-R-C-L-A-Y at T-C works, Thomas Charlie works, dot net. And I would love to hear from anyone. And if you have a problem with a telescope or have a question about how the Big Bang and God's creation can go together, uh, give, me a, give me a call. I'll be happy to talk to you about it. Fabulous. Fabulous. Again, thank you for joining me. It's been a wonderful show. Thank you so much for inviting me, John. Folks, you've been listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. We'll see you again next week. Mm-hmm.